Hi, I hope you're having a good day. This is Gary Zacharias with the Apologist Bookshelf. What a treat. I get to talk about one of my favorite books by one of my favorite people. I'm going back, taking a second look in a different section of a book called God's Crime Scene by J. Warner Wallace. What a nice guy. I just uh, I love everything he does, and he's a very warm person, very kind person. Um, I don't think I mentioned this before when I was uh, talking about the book, but I just looked at the people in the front pages here who recommended Eric Metaxas, Dr. Stephen Meyer, Nancy Piercy, Lee Strobel, Dr. Frank Turek, Hank Hanegraaff, Paul Copan, Craig Hazen. I hope these names ring a bell with some of you. Dan Kimball, Michael Behe, uh, Jeffrey Zwierink, John Stone Street, Brett Kunkel, Mary Jo Sharp, Sean McDowell, Abdu Murray, Amy Hall. I mean, these are people from different walks of life doing different Christian work, but they're all in agreement, and I am in agreement with them. This is an excellent book. And what he's doing here is, uh, just to look at the subtitle, A Cold Case Detective Examines the Evidence for a Divinely Created Universe. So he looks at all the reasons why we can believe there is a God, just based on what we can see out in the universe. I want to do the chapter on um, looking at fine-tuning in the universe. He says, we have a universe that's got what he calls a just-so appearance. And he says, everybody agrees with that. It says, that's an uncontroversial statement. He quotes Paul Davies, who's agnostic. He doesn't uh, know whether he believes there's a divine being out there. But he said, everyone agrees that the universe looks as if it was designed for life. So what Jim Wallace is going to do is he's going to look at various levels of fine-tuning. And he starts with foundational things, like what's going on on the small scale, I guess we could say. He says the laws of nature are amazingly fine-tuned. So what's he talking about there? Well, things, if you go down to the level of the atom, you've got the weak nuclear force has a certain pull, electromagnetism has a pull, force of gravity. He said those things have to exist within very, very narrow ranges if you're going to have life in the universe. And he says things like, well, uh, one of these things has to be, a value has to be, uh, can not deviate more than 1 in 10 to the 37th power. And of course, I look at that and I go, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know what 1 in 10 to the 37th means. And then he says, but I'll show you how he gets around that to, to make it more understandable for us. He says, if you took the ratio between the electromagnetic force and gravity, if it was altered more than one in 10 to the 40th power, the universe would not be the way it is now and we'd have no life. So again, I look at that and go, so what does that mean, one in 10 to the 40th? So he's going to explain that in just a second, give us an idea. He says, you've got gravity is just exactly right. If the, if the universe expanded faster or gravity was less strong, you wouldn't get life, you wouldn't get sun, you wouldn't get stars. If it expanded more slowly, the universe expanded more slowly, again, you, you wouldn't get anything here as far as life. Um, he talks about the earliest elements of the universe. There, that was hydrogen and helium. You can't get carbon-based life forms if that's all you've got. You've got to join them to carbon, oxygen, and other elements. Well, how do you get those other elements? They're formed in stars. But he says the process through which you can get those stars to convert hydrogen and helium to carbon is another fine-tuned process. So he says maybe at this point, 
he should try to under, help us understand, anyway, give us some illustrations about how tiny and how specific these fine tunings have to be on the atomic level. So he says, remember he had said 1 in, in uh, 10 to the 40th? Okay, so things have to be that finely tuned. And I say, well, okay, I don't know what that means. So he says, imagine this. You cover the entire North American continent in dimes, and you stack them until they reach the moon. Now, he says, imagine stacking just as many dimes again on another billion, with a B, continents the same size as North America. And if you marked one of those dimes and you hid it into those billions of piles, the odds of a friend picking it out blindfolded, getting that right dime, is 1 in 10 to the 37th. He said, that's the same level of precision that's required in the expansion rate of the universe and the strong nuclear force. Okay, so does that give you a picture? Yeah, it did me. I guess I'm picture-oriented. I love things like that where illustrations are used. Here's a second illustration. Imagine you took a tape measure and you stretched it all the way across the universe, not just across the Earth or from the Earth to the Moon. A tape measure that goes all the way across the universe. Now, he says, suppose somewhere on there you've made one mark, and that represents the correct degree of gravitational force that you need to have the universe. He said, if you move that mark one inch... Now, remember, this is a measuring tape across the entire universe. You move it one inch. It says you would alter gravitational forces so much you wouldn't have the universe coming into existence. Or, here's another illustration. I love this one. Imagine trying to fire a bullet at a one-inch target. Okay, where's this target? On the other side of the universe. He says, well, they've estimated the accuracy that's required to do that has been calculated at 1 in 10 to the 60th. He said, well, that's the precision you need for the mass density of the universe. That's fine-tuned to about the same level, 1 in 10 to the 59th. Oh, here's another one. Imagine comparing the universe to a United States aircraft carrier. And he uses the example of one called the USS John Stennis. And he says that's over 1,000 feet long, has a displacement of 100,000 tons. He says, if this carrier were as fine-tuned as the mass density of the universe, if you took a billionth of a trillionth of the mass of an electron from the mass of that whole aircraft carrier, the ship would sink. It's got to be that fine. So he says, wow. He says, a small change in the value of any one particle or force would have a major impact on larger systems and outcomes. Isn't that something? He quotes a theoretical physicist, Michio Kaku. He says, It's shocking to find how many of the familiar constants of the universe lie within a very narrow band that makes life possible. If a single one of these accidents were altered, stars would never form. The universe would fly apart. DNA would not exist. Life as we know it would be impossible. Earth would flip over or freeze, and so on. Isn't that wild? Okay, then he says, All right, let's, let's now look at another layer, another level, that's where we live. Let's just talk about our galaxy for just a minute. He says it's unbelievable. It has to be unique to get life here. So the shape of our galaxy, we're in the Milky Way galaxy. You've probably seen illustrations of it. It looks kind of like a pinwheel, very thin and pretty big, spread out there with arms. They call it a spiral galaxy. We have to have a spiral galaxy to have life. If our galaxy was bigger and irregular, says the nucleus would have so much radiation and so much matter would be blown out that you wouldn't get life here. 
You can't have dwarf elliptical galaxies. They're metal poor. So they're unlikely candidates for life. So we've got to have that spiral shape. Then we have to have the Milky Way galaxy in the right position. It's separated just enough from other large galaxies to guard against all sorts of gravitational problems, interactions. And he says, well, where are we inside the Milky Way galaxy? We're in a spiral arm, so we're away from that radiation that would be at the center and just fry us. And then he says, what about the sun that we have? Let's move in a little closer. Well, the sun is exactly what we need. It's made of the right stuff, and it has metallic composition, quite a bit of metal in it that produce the metals necessary for our planet without over-radiating or poisoning us. The color is exactly right for photosynthesis. The sun is bright and warm enough to give us carbon-based life forms. Our solar system has a single star. If you have multiple stars, which a lot of places do, orbiting each other, you've got all sorts of tides that are a mess and gravitational forces and overheating. Then, again, considering our sun, it's the exact age that you need. If it was older or younger, you would have unstable luminosity. It would burn brighter or, or be colder. He says the sun is in the middle of its life cycle. It has just the right amount of heavy elements. Its mass is just right. The gravitational attraction that it uh, does is exactly what we need. If our sun were more massive, it'd burn out too rapidly and too erratic. Well, what about the planets that we have here? Well, we've got to have more than one planet. You have these large gas giants that are outside of the Earth's orbit, and they're kind of like vacuum cleaners, right? They help clean out the solar system, and they're like a big brother. They protect us from um, things coming in from outer space there that could smash into the Earth. And then what about our Earth? Well, we are exactly in a very small habitable zone going around the sun. Our atmosphere is exactly right. The gravity of Earth that holds on to the atmosphere is just right. The Earth's crust, for example, it has to have a certain thickness to support life. Okay, so I'm not going into the details in these, but just I hope these are beginning to just pile up as you're thinking about them. The Earth has to have the right kind of moon. Now, other planets do have moons, but ours is critical. We have a large moon, and we have a single moon. It's just the right size to stabilize our orbit and our rotation. It limits our climate and temperature, so it doesn't vary too much. If we didn't have a large moon, we'd have an axis that would wobble by as much as maybe 90 degrees. Uh, a couple of, uh, one astronomer, Donald Brownlee, says, without the moon, there'd be no moonbeams, no month, no lunacy, no Apollo program. And he's kidding around with that, but he says, without the moon, we probably have no birds, redwoods, whales, trilobites, or other advanced life on this earth. So, amazing stuff. He also goes back to Paul Davies one more time. And he says, you might be tempted to suppose that any old ragbag of laws would produce a complex universe of some sort with inhabitants convinced of their own specialness, but he says, not so. It turns out that these what appear to be randomly selected laws lead inevitably either to chaos or boring and uneventful simplicity. But our universe, he says, is poised exquisitely between these alternatives. We have a potent mix of freedom and discipline, a sort of unrestrained creativity. Hmm. Now, he says some people will say, well, okay, uh, we buy into this fine-tuning, but it might be just an accident. But he said... That seems uh, pretty nuts when you look at it. 
that ignores all that evidence that he's been talking about, all these high improbabilities of fine-tuning. He says others will say, well, the universe is the way it is because the law of physics don't allow any alternative. But he said, that's not supported by evidence. There's no reason to believe that the laws of nature couldn't have been different. And if they were, good luck, we wouldn't be here. Then he comes to one uh, area that I've heard of before. He said, then you get some people who say, it's the multiverse. That's how we solve it. So for many theorists, they say that explains the appearance of fine-tuning. So what's going on is that there's some mechanism out there, and it creates an incredibly large number of universes, churning them out by the millions, by the billions. And each of them are slightly different as far as their physical laws. So according to this theory, most of the universes in the large multiverse collection are incapable of permitting life. So they, they are spewed out. Here comes another universe. Here comes another one. And they just don't have the right conditions for life. But here comes our universe. Kaboom! Pops into existence. And it happens to support, support our existence. All the laws are twisted. Those dials are twisted exactly right for us. So that's one way that you can overcome these incredible odds against life. You just say there's a... It's like throwing the dice millions and billions of times. Eventually, you'll get a perfect throw of dice. But he said, you know, that explanation for this multiverse lacks all sorts of support. I mean, scientists can't access other universes. How would you find out to corroborate these claims that there's another universe out there? And he said, well, but it doesn't even eliminate the need for fine-tuning. Why? Well, you've got a multiverse-generating mechanism. Where is that coming from? And that would have to be calibrated in some way to make the generation of a life-permitting universe possible. So after all, it's got to produce universes that have one setting, then produce another universe that has a slightly different setting, and then a different setting. So it's churning them out with all sorts of possibilities. How is it doing this? And so we've got a problem there for people who want to buy into some other theory besides a creator coming up with this. So the multiverse doesn't work particularly well. And uh, he ends the chapter by quoting from Arno Penzias, well-known um, scientist who says, Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was create, created out of nothing, one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the conditions required to permit life, and one which has an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. So that's his chapter, and I think he does an excellent job on that. He actually um, tackles other reasons why we can believe that the universe is created by God. He uses eight pieces of evidence, and I've talked about one before. That's the evidence for the existence of the soul. And then this one, we're talking about the fine-tuning of the universe. I really want to come back to this book certainly more than once. Uh, I, this book is, is worth it. It came out, I think it was 2015, so still relatively up to date. And uh, just excellent, excellent work in here. He does his own sketches, and um, what a nice guy. If you can ever get him to come to your church, uh, do a Zoom meeting sometime, uh, you'll be fortunate. And he, he's an excellent person to work with. He's got a website, coldcasechristianity.com. That's uh, something that you ought to consider uh, looking at. That's an amazing sight, too. So thank you to Jim Wallace, J. Warner Wallace. Uh, everybody calls him Jim, Jim Wallace. So, Jim, thank you so much for what you've done. And thank you all for listening to this podcast, and we'll do another one soon.